Um, I'm going to turn it over to the editor of Three Hole Press, Rachel Cowder Nailbuff, to introduce this evening's playwrights. Thank you so much, Rachel. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me without the mic? Should I use it? Is this better? This is better. Okay. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, it's really exciting to see many of you that I know and many people that I don't, many people that I know who are in the theater world, many people that have nothing to do with theater, maybe some people that even dislike theater. Um, and I, <laughs> I want to welcome all of you because Three Whole Press is new, so I want to tell you a little bit about it. And it um, grew out of my frustration with the siloed nature of the artistic conversations that happen within theater. And I see the press as a home for artists and people outside of the theater who are looking towards theater and playwrights and artists working within theater um, and looking out to the wider world and other culture. And I think that's what makes uh, Alicia Harris and Alex Brinsky such exciting and important playwrights is that they're doing that. Um, and um, I was thinking a little bit about what makes their plays particularly meaningful and important to read. And I think, uh, for me, it's what I think makes theater most beautiful, which is its openness to interpretation. Um, and that's something that I think is so often invisible in live performance, um, because by the time a live performance reaches us, the decisions have been made about aesthetics and casting and tone and even meaning of a work. Um, and so what makes these plays important to read and look at um, is that both Alex and Alicia's work really generously, I think, sits with openness and different kinds of, um, letting different kinds of interpretations stand side by side. Um, and they feel like conversations with the reader, um, I think, as much as a viewer. Um, like, I, I just had this really wonderful experience of hearing Alicia's play, Is God Is, which just won the Relentless War Award, which is really amazing. <laughs> um, so it was just read um, at the ceremony in New York, and it was so wonderful and exciting. Um, and I was I was sitting in the back row, and I was like, "You guys don't know what it looks like on the page. You're missing so much." Um, so I think I think these works really um, benefit from extended time um, as a reader, and they feel like conversations with readers. So in addition to hearing the excerpts that you're about to hear from the playwrights. Um, I hope that you spend some time looking at the books afterwards because they're conversations with you. Um, so I am so happy to be introducing Alexander Berinsky, who is um, a playwright. Oh, phew. <laughs> and performer originally from Baltimore. This year, he is an artist-in-residence at University Settlement, where he is exploring dancing and labor and making a piece about classrooms. In June, Club Them will present his play of government as part of their annual Summer Works Festival. He has collaborated on projects in bedrooms, backyards, basements, bars, and theaters. Alexander Berinsky. Thank you. Thanks for being here, everybody. Um, 
This is good. You can hear. Okay. Um, I thought I'd just read a little bit of the play. Starts off with this guy Julian and his mom looking out over America. Look, says the mom. Julian, you're my kid. I'm your mom. Look. Look out. Look out at all this. Look at the crumbled highways. Look at the overpasses pulled up like weeds and laying on their sides. Look at all the big box stores. Their roofs have been peeled back and big fistfuls of their merchandise strewn across the parking lots. Look at the buildings with their windows punched in like popped eyeballs. This is it. Look at it. Just look. What a shame. What a waste. We've come to the end. We'll have to clean it all up. Look at the bodies of the drowned. Look at the waterlogged trailers. Look at the mud. Everything covered in mud. Look at the last gasping fishies. There will have to be some cleaning up of this for sure. Or maybe it's the end. Nothing to do. Or maybe we can clean it up. Look, Julian. And that's just a fragment. So then we go to book six. Which starts with Julian and his mom in their house. Mom? Yeah, Julian? What do you want? Do you want mac and cheese? What do you want for dinner? Oh. Oh, I can't decide. I can't decide. I've been having this problem all day. Do you want me to decide for you? Maybe. No, I don't know. Just relax, Julian says. I'll get you some seltzer. I'll make mac and cheese. Thank you, sweetie. Will it bother you if I turn on the news? No, that's fine. A deadly fire in Oliver today, plus hope in the form of a puppy drive at the children's hospital. All that tonight on not too much butter, honey. And out of nowhere, this other person, who's the sort of third person of the play, Dan, DT, arrives. Hi there. This is where I arrive. I arrive plucked from a prison, elsewhere, a prison, a whimsy, a wish, the fact that I'm here to be a part of this story. How should you know me? Maybe, yeah, maybe you can know me as a bad person, a very bad person, yes, a villain. I blew up a bomb, a bomb, I blew up a bomb. Oh, yes, I'm very bad, very, very bad. I'm a monster. Oh, yes, I'm young. I'm a kid. I'm a 20-year-old little boy, but I blew up a bomb. I blew up a bomb in a big city, a pressure cooker. There were nails, no one saw it coming, legs ripped off, and arms, three people dead. It was all over the news. The city was reeling, but here I am now. They caught me, they locked me away, but here I am now, plucked from the ether. I'm a part of this story. This is how I arrived, just like that, a whimsy, a wish. I could be anybody. You might know me, you might not. You can know me as, oh, this very bad little kid. You can call me Dan. Then we're back with Julian and his mom. That was so good, honey. That mac and cheese was so, so good. Thank you for that. Of course. I'm going to go upstairs, sweetie. Sure. And then Julian and Dan are walking through the streets of Baltimore. So you don't know the city, Julian says. No, says Dan. How long have you been here? I really just arrived. Well, I'll have to show you around. I love giving people tours. Mom alone in the kitchen. What are we going to make of this American kingdom? Julian and Dan on the street again. Baltimore is a very multicultural place. Italian people and Polish people and Hispanic people and black people and Asian people and Indian people. I have this project where I want to make a quilt of the city with a patch for every single community. That's cool, says Dan. I know, right? Just because I grew up looking like I do doesn't mean I can't see the whole big picture. Then we're back to mom alone in the kitchen. I sit on matching floral pillows and consider the contours of our national economy and cultural constructions of trauma. When the mailman comes by, I know his name. Julian and Dan again. They call this part of the city Little Connecticut. Just north of here is Little Calcutta, and just east of here is Little Bangkok. And believe it or not, the best Mexican restaurant in the city is right here in Little Connecticut, Tacos, Mexico. My mom's friend is the manager. I hang out here a lot. 
Everything important in my life happens here at Tacos Mexico. I have a project where I'm collecting books for the kids in the hospital downtown. I've talked to some managers and put boxes in a couple of places. There's one over there. Tanya will bring us tortilla chips and three kinds of salsa. I like the green kind. How do you feel about salsa? I feel good, says Dan. Mom again. I want my long-anticipated flowering of opportunity. I want plants overflowing their planters. For now, I am balancing my checkbook. I am paying down my credit card. I am washing my dishes as soon as I use them. When I go by the library, I'm trying to expand my horizons. Julian and Dan again. I have a thought. Tell me what you think. Perhaps we could start telling each other the details of our lives, and from there we can hunker down to the business of being friends. What do you think? Sure. Sounds good. I was in my high school marching band, Julian tells him. I was good at Latin and at Spanish. I'm interested in goodness. I work in an organic grocery store. I make sandwiches. Do you want to order food, food, or I'm okay for now? You're welcome to come back home with me later. I have a boyfriend. I should tell you that. He's younger than I am. You must be younger than I am. I was born in 1985. When were you born? 1993. Oh, my God. Still, I think we can be connected in spite of our difference in age. I live with my mom, which, no, it is what it is. She'll cook something good. Do you want to do that? Sure. I'll call my friend Mia. She's fun. Now they're home with mom. I know I said I would cook, but I was craving tacos Mexico, so I ordered out. Is this going to send you to a psychologist? No, mom. This is Dan. Oh, hi, Dan. I met Dan. No, I don't think you met Dan. I didn't meet Dan? Hi, Dan. Hi. Maybe you just look familiar. Could be. Skip ahead again to Julian and Dan alone later. Tell me what I can do to help you, Julian says. You're really nice. I'm working on letting go, this is Dan, on relaxing into my everyday life. It comes slowly to me. We live in hard times. Times are hard on the streets, in the buildings, up above, down below. This is a dark era. Everywhere is bright. Everything is moving, but we're living under a shadow. Gravity isn't just down anymore towards the center. It's sideways towards the buildings. It's hard. A lot of people are having a really hard time. I'd like to get better at letting certain things go. I love in short little bursts. I'd like to get better at loving people for a long time. Yes, says Julian. Yes, you're very... I think you're like me. We're just very sensitive people. We all have some things we could be working on. Would you like some lotion? (laughs) I'm okay, says Dan. This stuff is good. It's not too oily, and I like the smell. And just then you looked at me in a way, Dan tells us, the audience, that I'm going to remember a long time. You looked at me like I was, deep down, a trivial, trivial person. (laughs) Then the marching band appears, the school marching band. And they say this. Ha! We can tell it's going to be a very good season. We can tell this season we're going to kill it. We can tell this season we're going to be into Mexican food. We can tell this might be the year we take home gold. We're excited about our freshmen. We're excited about our sophomores. We're excited about our juniors. We're in love with our seniors. We might work a couple of new numbers into our repertoire. Out with the old, in with the new. Last year was a difficult year. This year's going to be awesome. We can tell. Don't look back. Crack is whack. Hardcore day after day. (laughs) Julian and Dan again. If you ever need a place to stay, you can stay over at my house. I know not everyone always has a place to go. That's something I'd like to improve about our world. I'd like it if we welcomed all sorts of people into our homes. Dan says, that's... thank you. Julian, how do you express yourself? Dan, I write poems sometimes. Sometimes I do drugs. Julian, cool, that's very cool. I want to read just the very beginning of um, this Dante book. In that part of the book of my memory, before which there would be little to read, is found a chapter heading which says, Here begins a new life. It is my intention to copy into this little book the words I find written under that heading, if not all of them, at least their significance. 
Nine times already since my birth, the heaven of light had circled back to almost the same point when the now glorious lady of my mind first appeared to my eyes. She was called Beatrice by many who could not have possibly called her by any other name. She had been in this life long enough to allow the starry heavens to move a twelfth of a degree to the east in her time. That is, she appeared to me almost in the beginning of her ninth year, and I first saw her near the the end of my ninth year. She appeared dressed in the most noble of colors, a subdued and decorous crimson, girded and adorned in a style suitable to her years. At that moment, and what I say is true, the vital spirit, the one that dwells in the most secret chamber of the heart, began to tremble so violently that even the least pulses of my body were strangely affected. In trembling, it spoke these words, Here is a God stronger than I who shall come to rule over me. At that point, the animal spirit, the one abiding in the high chamber to which all the senses bring their perceptions, was stricken with amazement and speaking directly to the spirits of sight, said these words, Now your bliss has appeared. At that moment, the natural spirit, the one which dwells in the part where our nourishment is attended to, began to weep, and weeping said these words, Alas, wretch that I am, from now on I shall be hindered often. Let me say that from that time on, love governed my soul. And one last little section from a little further on in the play, uh, Julian and Dan hanging out together. Julian says, Now that we're high, is there any more information we need to exchange? This is really nice. I'm starting to feel it. I don't really believe in information as a way to get to know people, but maybe there are certain facts. Dan, well, I've got this big thing, the main fact. I blew up a bomb. It's kind of a long story. Julian, I know. I read about it in the paper. Ooh, Dan. Dan, you know I used to sell this stuff in high school. And what's it called? Molly? Molly. I've Yes, this is my first. It's nice. It's really nice. I'm really starting to feel it. Yeah? Yeah, it's a tingling. And I started selling these in 10th grade, and I got stuck without a re-up once. And I risked it and made up little pills with baking soda. It's like my cells are all peppermint. And people liked it. They kept telling me how good these were. And so after that, I just sold baking soda. And I was just making so much more money. I can... And I'm hearing in color, it's like, this is so nice. I'm really starting to feel it. So yeah, these are actually baking soda. It's, what? (laughs) These are just baking soda. Dan, I'm kidding. No, these are good. These are good stuff. (laughs) I'm going to be in jail for a long time. I know, says Julian. Do you think eventually I'll be able to start again? Do you think I could have a second career? Do you think I could be a musician? I think so. I really think so. I could help you. There's so much we're capable of that we don't know. And for a while, they just looked deeply into each other's eyes. Thank y'all. One more important piece of business is I get to introduce Alicia. Alicia, as we heard, won the 2016 Relentless Award for Is God Is. She lives in California and teaches in the School of Theater at California Institute of the Arts. And tonight her work will be read by Shana Simmons, Ari Flynn Bolden, and Madeline Rochester. sister to Anaya, has burn scars on her arms, back, and neck, but a face of considerable beauty. 
Anaya has burn scars on her arms, face, and neck. Hard to look at, wears a wig. Scene one, a blazing inferno. Out of the fire step Anaya and Racine, a studio apartment in the Northeast. Anaya rubs the scars on Racine's back with ice as the fire subsides. Twins. Burning them burning twins at home in their apartment in the Northeast, New York, or Hampshire, or Jersey. Or something like that. Some, somewhere that don't feel right. Twins. twins. Racine is the rough one who still got some pretty to her. She only got the scars on her back and a bit creeping up the rear of her neck. You can barely see them. Anaya wasn't so lucky. Face looked like it melted and then froze. Mostly people don't let their eyes meet hers. Scene used the handle of a rake to shut Tommy dancing up in the seventh grade when he called Naya a bad name. That's the kind of roughness she got. Naya is trapped in a prison of sweetness. Girls so ugly don't get to be mean. Scene does though. She got both their mean. Got something today. Naya's too tired for this. She work in a warehouse packing cold things into boxes all day. She's too tired for this. In the mail, got something, news. Naya keep her head down out of habit. Oh yeah? I got news too. This big though. Got a letter with some news in it. Big news. Letter from who? From mama. From who? From mama. Who mama? Our mama. We got a mama? We do. Too tired for this. I thought she was dead. Well, she ain't. I thought she was dead in the fire. Same fire that put these marks on us? Well, she ain't. Well, what she want? Where she been? You getting all worked up. Switch. Anaya sits. Racine rubs ice on Anaya's scars. She want to see us. She been in a place. A place for sick people who old. Uh, old folks home? I think so. Takes an envelope from her pocket. Reads. Folsom Rest Home for the Weary. 2115 Pluckham Drive. Oscarville, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, Dirty South, 3958-213650849. That's where she at? Yep. Damn. That's where she been at? Seem like it. Damn. Hey, twin. Yeah? Seem like we gotta go to where she at. Go? Yeah. But we don't know her and she don't know us. She know our names and she know how to find us. We gotta go see her. Well, why she ain't come to see us in all these years? Ask about us. Only one way to find out? Let's go. Now? Yep, right now, cause she finna go. Where is she finna go? Die. Die? Yep, says so in the letter. Damn, see? I know it. She only wrote to you? She ain't write me? Ain't but my name on the envelope. But she talk about you. Why ain't she write me? Maybe cause she knew you'd be all emotional. Me? Yeah, you. Even though she ain't been around us, she probably got an intuition about it. Mamas be knowing stuff like that. She can probably sense how you be getting all emotional and sad, sacky. I don't be. You do. I don't. Do. You cried about the kitten we couldn't get out of the engine. The one that died? It died because you wasn't patient enough to coax it out. Had to get to work. You cried. Remember? All emotional. Yeah, I guess that's true. I do be all emotional sometimes. Like a little punk. Yeah. Yeah. Ha ha. Like a little bitch. Okay, now you're taking it too far. I'm playing. I got stuff to do, though. I got to meet up with Ellis and tell him about something. Ellis who? Oh, him. Yeah, we supposed to meet up. Scene sigh and roll her eyes like, here we go again about that man she met online. What you got to meet up with him for? We supposed to meet up and talk about 
the future? Seen bite her tongue. Mm-hmm. Switch. They switch positions and Anaya is now applying ice to Racine's scars. You love him? No, but I don't want him to leave. Then do what you gotta do to keep him. You don't like me to look at him when we doing it. So don't look at him. Put your pride away. Some of us don't get to have pride. True. So let him get it from behind. If you look at him, he might start to catch feelings. True, true. And we ain't got time for being weak with feelings for no man, Naya. We got things to do. She waiting on us. She finna go, huh? Go die? Yep, she finna go, so we gotta go. Damn. I know. Well, I guess I, I'll catch him later. That's right. You can catch old dude later. We need to look good since this kind of like our first and last time seeing her, don't you think? I'm finna dress up. I'm wearing lipstick and all. I'm gonna put me on some too. And a dress. You don't never wear dresses. You be on that boho, I'm so pretty, I ain't gotta try shit. Yeah, but this is mama we talking about. I feel you. They are both getting prettified. That lipstick real red. Yep. Like how it feel to know she coming and going. You, you look, look good. good. Thanks. Think she'll like, like it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Scene two. The twins stand before an immense door. We in it. This is it. Folsom Rest Home for the Weary. 2115 Pluckham Drive. Oscarville, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, Dirty South, 39582313650849. Room 416B. And a sign with our names on it. She must have did that so we'd know we was in the right place. My name ain't spelt right. Oh, come on, Naya. You think she's still alive? Only one way to find out. My mascara running? A little. It's hot. Yeah, dirty south. Stay hot. You ready? To see God? God? Well, she made us, didn't she? You gonna get struck down. Anaya. Racine. That y'all? You go on in. You first. I can feel y'all out there. Firstborn is the first one in. That's stupid. <laughs> you wait. You wait. You wasting time. She is wheezing. She lies on her deathbed. She huffs, coughs, and struggles to breathe. Her voice comes out in hoarse rasps. I'm so glad you could make it. Had the nurse put a sign out by my door, a sign with your names on it. See it? Yes, Mama. We, we, we really like that sign. We seen it. My name ain't spelled right. Good. Let me look at y'all. Okay, I see. Anaya and Racine. Used to put y'all in opposite clothes so I could tell you apart. Anaya, you was always in tropical colors. And Racine, I had you in pastels. No matchy-matchy for my girls. That's nice. Now, I like tropical and Naya like pastels. That's a lie. Shut up. So, how you been? <laughs> oh, you know, dying. Yeah. Yeah. I see you got them tubes in you. We came as soon as we could. Had to take off work, but we here. I work at a daycare and Naya work in a warehouse. She got a boyfriend. That's a lie. She got something else, too. Ma'am? Nothing. She quiet. Hi, Mama. 
I ain't wrote you, Naya. Because you be getting all emotional. <laughs> Been that way since you was little. I know. I ain't want to upset you. I know. Thank you. My girls. Yeah. My baby girls. Yep. That's us. Y'all are looking at the last days. I keep telling myself, Ruby, this might be your last Thursday. Your last time waking up in this bed. Your last time thinking it's your last time. <laughs> Y'all got so big. Yeah, in 18 years. Yep. We thought you was dead. That's what I wanted y'all to think. It want a mommy with a body looking like an alligator. Why? Why you got a body like an alligator? Cause of what he did. He who? They ain't told y'all. Nah, they just said you was dead. So we a little confused because you alive, but you ain't write us or nothing. But we ain't really worried about all that. 18 years. Been 18 years. Was that an awkward pause? <laughs> all you know is it was a fire and your mama was gone, huh? That's yeah. pretty much what they told us. Well, I'm going to tell you, there's more. was such a cliffhanger to end on. Now you'll all need to read the play. Um, Alex and Alicia, why don't we come up here and we're just going to have a few minute chat about these plays um, and then we'll hang out. Yeah. And then we'll take any, well, we'll take some of your questions too. But um, I want to know, we, we had a book launch in New York and we had um, one of my favorite things to learn about was just hearing about Alex and Alicia's process for these plays um, because, oh, do you have your copy? Mm -hmm. I just want to show people. Um, because I think Alex and Alicia have come to theater for very different reasons and their work both really considers um, the page. You could just open it to any, any page, mm -hmm. really. Um, and so I wanted to hear from both of you why, yeah, sort of your writing process, do your other plays look like this? Um, and what was your experience of, of writing this play? Um, I, so I think my other plays do not look like this. It, uh, I was working on a play, and because I was scattered and disorganized, was bringing in new pages to the rehearsal process, and some of them were formatted differently, and they were formatted... <laughs> with less space between the lines. And I realized that it made the actors speak more quickly. It just changed the tone and rhythm of how they were speaking. And so um, there was something about wanting to smush all the language together. There's something about having lines continue from the end of one character's line into the next one that I feel like keeps the speed that I feel like this play needs to move at. And there's something about... So some of it is like 
in performance learning like how that affects performance and some of it is just I feel like they're I was just talking to Craig about this person earlier Renee Gladman this poet I love has some of her books are the text is squished into a column and you can feel it's like when the liquid becomes a solid like the, the <laughs> language becomes a different kind of object when it's formatted that way which sounds sort of like silly and vague but it, I feel like it's really a concrete thing mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's great yeah, yeah. so um my other plays don't look like this. I'd, I'd sort of flirted with playing with typography just a little bit, but this one I really liberated myself and just went sort of wild. And um, I'm influenced, I was influenced in terms of the performance of the language on the page by the work of visual poets, including my mentor, Doug Kearney, who also teaches at CalArts. And also there's this graphic version of The Bald Soprano by Ionesco, where the language is really dancing all over the page, which I've always found really exciting. So I guess my sort of mandate was like, if I were mm-hmm. to do that, if I were to just liberate myself from the conventional way of laying language out on a page, what, what might that look like? Yeah. Very cool. Okay, well, I wanted to also hear you guys talk about your influences. Um, so if there are people that you, you mentioned, a few people just now, and I'm curious, are there other people that you are always in conversation with you as you're writing or you're thinking about now as you're writing your new projects? Um, whether they're in or outside the theater, I just, yeah. I would say that, I feel like there are clusters of people around each play and each project that are feel like they're the voices in the ear. And this, I, uh, Renee Gladman is one of them for this play, and Amina Kane is one of them. There's something about being ill at ease in your body in the world that feels like it's captured by her writing. And um, Danielle Dutton, who is also an editor of this amazing press. Dorothy has this book called Sprawl about suburbia that the way she uses verb tense is so exciting. It's like there's something about the fact of present versus past tense, of continuous present tense language that feels inherently dramatic to me because when I'm standing here in front of you saying like, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm trying to make it to work on time, you're looking at me and I'm not doing either of those things. And there's like a weird melancholy dissonance that happens when I'm speaking a present tense language. So there's, I feel like in her, that book, Sprawl, is a very special book to me. And so, and then Fanny Howe, who writes a lot about um, violence and uh, mental health as sort of like a disconnect from society, I feel like she's in this book. Yeah. Um, many spaces of influence for this book. I, I, I also, so there were a few mandates. Another was like if I were to write an ancient, a tragedy that was like an ancient Greek tragedy, what would that look like? So it's a domestic tale that's, that is in many ways tragic. Um, influenced by like Medea, you know, Euripides, and, um, and Orestes, I think are probably my favorites. Um, I was also, Susan Laurie Parks is probably the first playwright I encountered who played with like architecture of language in, in a way that I found really striking. So I would say Susan Laurie Parks. Um, and I, I also wanted to write like a Western. So there's a lot of different genres sort of jammed in to this piece and something that felt sort of punk in, its, in, in some ways in its irreverence. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, in addition yeah. to like UNESCO. And Heiner Muller, I always take, whenever I'm going somewhere to write, I always take Medea material with me. It's like one of my favorite pieces. So we'll see how that trickles into your next. We know an Alicia secret now. Um, I, I'm, I'm also so interested in both of these 
plays because as I was reviewing them this morning, I was thinking they're both quite plot heavy. Like they actually, um, I feel like I feel like they're they're subverting so much about theater, but they really do both have a clear story and. Did you know where these plays were going to go when you started writing them? Do you always have an ending in mind? Like, what is your relationship to beginnings and endings? Um, what do you know about a story when you're starting it, I guess? Um, it depends on the story. With this one, I, I knew how I wanted it to feel, if that makes sense. Yeah. I knew that I wanted, in some ways, for to use like the tropes, Western tropes. Um, and some of the things that we see like in, in ancient Greek tragedy. But that was it. I really had to, and I knew like there were gonna be twins, and, mm-hmm. um, but I had to find the rhythm, I had to find the bones. And once I did though, things came pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, but I, I definitely did not know how this play was going to end. That's so surprising to me because it feels like the ending, it almost feels classical where you're like, it can only end in this uh, one uh, way. Uh-huh. So that you didn't know that is like, is pretty, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, what about you? Yeah, I, I, um, I'm now shifting my brain from listening to what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I, I yeah, I do, I've, there's a lot of surprise that happens in the writing of it, but I feel like I know what the machine is supposed to move like. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like the first section, like what you said about it, feeling a certain way, like mm-hmm. the machine is to gallop for a little bit, and then it's going to, like, skid sideways and bloom a little bit, and the last part's going to be up here and over that you just it's like a it's like a machine or like a little yeah. kinesthetic sculpture that mm-hmm. you know what the motion is but you don't know what right. the, right. the narrative of that is for me right right so as a part of that mechanism of course I guess what we haven't talked about is what you know and you picture happening on stage mm-hmm. and I'm also curious like you talked a little bit about the pleasure you get from the friction of the language versus what you're seeing what do you both know about how these plays should or you want them to look and feel in, in performance um, yeah well it's um, it's a true experiment you know um, I hope that it's exciting but I don't know like it really was I'm not sure what how an actor will respond to this you know this word that sort of right you know trickles down the page um, so I guess um, I don't know I I don't know there's no easy answer I hope that there's investment I hope that that um, there's excitement, so that so that the body is articulated in a way that feels right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. That's great. No, that's really know. great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that I also feel excited to see. I feel like this is a play where I want to. I really crave, need, desire the like visual genius of someone else who is not me and for them to right. have some insight that will like solve mm-hmm. all the problems that I haven't been able to solve <laughs> but I think that I think that I my my sense my I, I feel like I know that each book each book six seven and eight happens in a different place or around a different like space of gathering whether it's like a table or a little kitty swimming pool or sort of a broken fragmented space and I feel like there's I do know that because those scenes are so short it needs to be like we need to be in a scene together and then I just need to turn my head and talk to you and be in a different place and context so mm-hmm. that it doesn't have to be like new set coming in to mm-hmm. show us where we are totally. yeah. I, I feel like I know that there's a way that these characters traverse a space that it feels sort of epic and sprawling in my brain that's one thing that I, that I think that I know is that mm-hmm. there's like movement of these women like, yeah. across, across the country essentially so, 
somehow representing that poetically on stage feels important. Totally, totally. Yeah, the epicness of that play. Um, that definitely seems important to convey. Do you guys, before we open it up to audience questions, do you have questions, more questions for each other? And that was my favorite one. question in New York that we got <laughs> yeah. to talk about. Yeah. I'm curious, Alexander, what you discovered in the creation of your play, or, or like what, if anything, surprised you, if you had a moment of surprise in your process, or in responses to the work? In, in the course of hearing it from, I feel like I have been interested and surprised in how many people feel this play to be political or uncomfortable politically um, and how many people find it to be just about um, not political. Mm-hmm. I've just um, it's interesting to me that <laughs> people feel it respond differently. Okay. Be- there's a and people I- I've had a lot of conversations about Dan used to be named Jokar in an early draft of the script because he's Jokar Sarnayev isn't there and I've had a lot of conversations with people where they were they talked a lot about how uncomfortable, or their feelings about, it just elicited a lot from people about Mm -hmm. um, that act of violence, that political violence. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that question? Um, It's related to violence as well. I feel like I didn't understand how violent this play was until I witnessed other people's reactions to how violent the play was. Do you know what I mean? Just in hearing their responses to it. And I was delighted that people think it's funny because I think I have a a weird sort of off sense of humor, so. Yeah, (laughs) it is really funny. I, which I shared the play with some students in this class I'm teaching, and that it, one thing that someone said was that it's you feel yourself sliding from this act of violence in his gut is feeling completely distanced and shocked by it to it feeling completely natural, and then remembering at the end how mm-hmm. violent, it was like a, so that that your experience as a reader or viewer is so it's ex- I feel like that's one of the things that's so exciting about that play. Mm, thank yeah. you. Thanks for sharing. That. Cool. So on that note of violence, who has a question? <laughs> yes. Uh, actually, directly relates to violence. Um, what what draws you to the Western tropes in specific? I, I see so many people that I respect who love Westerns mm-hmm. and Western genre. Mm-hmm. Personally, I find nothing to do. Um, I think two things. One is that I've had the desire since I was a child to insert myself into spaces where I didn't see a lot of black bodies. So it was just like, what if I write like a black girl, black woman Western, like what does that look like? And then also I think it's comforting that we sort of, with certain tropes, it's like a warm blanket. Like you know what you're getting in a way. And I enjoy subverting the expectation, using the trope. So you think that this standoff will be this thing, right? But I'm going to do something else with it. So it's just, it's really like just stealing the, the tropes to manipulate an audience. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm struck by a lot of what you're saying. And because of the stage reading, thank you so much. That was so, um, such a treat for us to have so much talent brought into play. It made your dialogue a little trickier. So I'm wanting to know when. Who, who says to whom um, that look is he realized his, the look he was getting That's Julian speaking about he's offered Dan some lotion and right. says like you looked at me when I offered you that lotion and said that I liked that lotion as if I was a very trivial person. So Dan says it to Julian? Dan says it to Julian about a look that right. Julian says it to Dan about a Dan, look Dan gave Julian. Okay. Because I'd like you to riff if you would 
on what I'm feeling, you're really onto this breakdown of the visual and verbal and language, this transactional dialogue that comes with late capitalism. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about mm -hmm. Fanny Howe and the disconnect of violence uh, and mental health in society, it just really strikes a chord to mm -hmm. what we're all trying to mm -hmm. dive into right now. And um, you seem to really understand the mechanisms that drive it forward and how how people are coming from different directions at it through mm -hmm. you know through font through mm -hmm. you know through a visual page mm -hmm. through the rhythm and uh, music of a story not so much the scenic rendering mm -hmm. um, and and just that one line stabbed me. The look you give me makes me insignificant. You know, in late capitalism, what could be stronger than that? And what could be felt more deeply than these two guys trying to have an ethereal relationship mm -hmm. of health? You know? mm -hmm. So could you explain to me kind of, you know, and I, I take down all your references because I'm, I'm just really interested in what you're thinking process. Well, can you? I feel say. I feel like there's so much to say on those. Same. Can you say more about what you're? Or just, you know, just riff. I mean, just you know. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where creation. You know, you're yeah. obviously thinking in in a direction, and you know that's the way you're thinking, and it's so interesting. Thank you so much. Oh no, thanks for those thoughts. Um, I don't know where to. Do you want to maybe friend. talk about actually your relationship to casting and the spaces you imagine your work to be in? That might be a nice. Can you speak up? Oh yeah. Um, that might be, I don't know if that's <laughs> <laughs> um, Say what you mean by it. Yeah, mean. well, I, something that Alex hasn't talked about yet that might, um, that feels connected to this idea of um, less transactional dialogue and representational theater, I think, um, is in his ways of staging his own works, too, which you won't get just from reading the text. Um, and I actually haven't gotten to see... Oh, I have seen... I haven't seen work that you've directed yourself, but I feel like this aspect of Alex's work, which you've picked up on so perceptively, really extends to how you organize and direct and think about... Um, yeah, how, how, how you direct your work, too. So I think that might be one way um, that would be informative, too, if, for all of us, since we won't understand that from reading your plays. Um, oh, gosh. So what, what do you think? Is that um, over, or is that too no, much? No, I'll just let's say maybe one thing, and then... Uh, I f am curious where... There's this feeling of, like... I feel like when you're watching a play, there's a feeling of the play existing in front of you and the play existing in your brain, and there's the feeling of looking through the play to what it's pointing at in the world, or what mm -hmm. looking through the language to what it's pointing at in the world in terms of like an implied, f more elaborate narrative. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious about whether you can. What does it mean if you like, like almost upload the whole experience of the play to your own brain as a viewer? Mm -hmm. And so I think that like sometimes casting people who don't physically resemble what the language tells them mm -hmm. tells us they resemble so that you're then you're there's a distance between them as sort of bodies speaking this text and what you're watching on mm -hmm. stage or whether there's a way of like stacking sentences how to say this right stacking sentences against each other at such an angle that you can feel the emotionality of what's going on without having to take that extra leap of like the language is here, then I go off here and find mm -hmm. the story or meaning and then bring that back and then have the emotion. Can the emotion just be in the shape of the language against itself? And 
can, and I think it can, and I think that that, so I'm curious whether that's, it's possible to have plays that may seem like very disjointed or abstract on a certain level, but, and maybe don't have a reference of a clear narrative outside of themselves, but in performance feel quite emotional and human and immediate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Why did you read the passage from Dante? Because there's a poet who I really like who I heard read, and he does that where he'll read a couple of his poems and then reads from someone else, and it makes me hear his poetry differently. It makes me hear the other thing differently. And I had just got that Dante book for $4 on the street the other day and read it, and I kept reading that first page to myself over and over again. I couldn't stop reading it. And I feel like <laughs> this, is sort of a, this is like sort of a love story play, but it's not because it's all projection and like obsession and this is sort of a love story and I wanted this like to sort of bring that feeling of like this old school courtly love into like this play because I feel like that's the energy of it but also this is Dante doesn't know Beatrice like that's him projecting <laughs> so it felt like a way of like hoping to cast some mutual light and also it's fun to hear a different sound I think yeah yeah anyone else can I right. oh. oh, I was oh, going to yeah. say, because you also direct your work sometimes, too, is that? I do. Mm -hmm. So would you talk about that? I'm curious to hear what you would say about those um, things. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Um, so when I direct, I'm really interested in, in a kind of embodiment. As I said, like the articulation of a person's form is really um, integral to the work. And I think there's a kind of immediacy that I want to capture um, that maybe, that I think is captured through the language. So Toni Morrison has writes about how you want to write the emotion into the line, which is what you were yeah. talking about. And somebody else writes, oh, Susan Lori Parks as well. So I think there's a way that, I don't know, I'm trying to find like a synergy as a director between, and I don't do it very often, I have just one piece of mind that I've directed, between like what's being said and what's, and how the movement captures the action of the play. And will you talk a little bit about your process of casting for that project? Like, you, you were looking for something specific with all of those performers, but it wasn't that they were all professional actors. Like right. Could, yeah, could you? Sure, so the, the project in question is a, a ritual response to the death of black people due to racialized violence. Um, and so it's a real ritual that we carry out and ask the audience to participate in if they feel comfortable doing so. Um, so I was looking for people, first of all, who were deeply connected to this. Well, they had to be Afri it, had to, it has to be carried out by African Americans or Afro diasporic people, and they have to be deeply connected to the issues. So they have to sincerely feel like there should be a ritual for when someone is killed. So I think maybe that's the yeah. specification that you're talking about is uh, yeah. as important as the ability to con to mm -hmm. convey to communicate is mm -hmm. just to to really care. I mean, it's critical. I think. Yeah, I, um, Alicia has made this incredible piece called "What to Send Up When It Goes Down," and I and that was what introduced me to Alicia's work. And um, I was talking to one of the actors afterwards, and he was saying that he could only perform that piece once a day um, because it just like took everything out of him. And I think that that had to do a lot with like the people that you chose mm -hmm. and how connected they were to those questions, because it was. I mean, it wasn't acting. It right. wasn't acting. And I think yeah. I, throughout the process was very clear about like this is a real ritual like we're not going to treat this like a thing that you sort of put on and take off but like how do you do go through these actions to bring about 
the goals of the ritual. So I, I was probably pretty fatiguing. Yeah, but I mean, it was so generous. Um, and both of you have been so generous today uh, reading your own work out loud, which never happens in theater. Um, so stick around. Oh, uh, sure, sure. Um, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about, God, why can't criticism be written like elegy? And then Hilton Owls just won the Pulitzer. And I mean, The Women has got to be the best book I've ever read in my life. And if there's one necessary you know, writer of my generation, it would be Hilton Owls. That would be the name. So I'm just wondering, I'm seeing a lot happening in criticism right now by smart people. And I'm wondering, are you receiving this? Are you receiving this new critical voice that seems to be emerging? And what do you think about the act of elegy or the act of creation within criticism? Does that guide your work the wrong way, or do you have feelings about critics? Do you have relationships with critics? How are you feeling about criticism? Well, I'm friendly with Charles McNulty. He taught me at CalArts, and we go see a show together from time to time. Um, I, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I appreciate critical engagement with a work that moves beyond just sort of being judgy and either saying this is good or this is bad because I think it deepens my relationship to my own work and I just, I think any rigorous engagement with a, a performance or a dramatic text is helpful to all of us. So I think as long as it's, you know, complex and sophisticated and interested in sort of deepening everyone's um, engagement with the work, then, then I love it. I think it's good for all of us, personally. Yeah. I would agree, and I think, I think there's not much of it in the main, in like the mainstream press in New York, at least writing about theater. Aside from Hill and maybe I want to take this Helen moment Shaw. to give a shout out to Andy Horowitz, who's here, the founder of CultureBot, um, where I think most theater criticism that's really thoughtful that's happening for experimental theater lives. So I'm really grateful for all the work you've done, Andy, in this, in this department. Yeah, you guys should chat afterwards. Um, yeah. It is like one conversation, right? Yeah. It's, well, it's all about where the thing lives in the world, where any of this lives in the world. And, yeah. Yeah, and audiences are, I think, a part of that, too, are an important part of that. Oh, was there one more question? Yes. Um, I just wanted to say how exciting it was to encounter this material for the first time in text. Mm. Because it created, it sort of like took the best of the novel through. And there's a kind of ownership that happens to the reader. So it made me, as much as I would run out to go see a live performance, mm -hmm. it, 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 I, you know, I just got kind of possessive of it because it existed first uh -huh. here. Uh -huh. And I just thought that was thrilling, and I'm really excited to make this. Thanks, Rizal. Okay, well, we'll be celebrating up here, and you guys can keep asking Alicia and Alex questions, and um, they'll be signing some books, so stick around. There's some wine, and thank you, guys. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.